0: Brethren, I invite you to turn in your copies of the Scriptures back to Luke 24 again. I'll be reading uh, verses 44 through the end of the chapter, as well as Psalm 47. So uh, you might want to turn to both texts and put a finger in the the latter one, Psalm 47. But we're going to begin uh, in Luke 24, beginning in verse 44 through the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. And now from Psalm 47. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Psalm 47. To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted." The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we give thanks that this week after we've celebrated the resurrection day on Easter Sunday, that we are informed from your scriptures of the mighty acts that continued in the presence of the disciples And the people of God who are called out of darkness into Your marvelous light, we thank You for the work of our dear Savior that culminates in His ascension to Your right hand. And as we look into that today, we pray Your blessings upon our study. May this important work of our Savior be imprinted on our minds and hearts. And may we submit to Him with fear and trembling, for He is the great God. And yet, He has brought salvation near to us in mercy and grace. Father, we give thanks for our Savior. Bless us now as we consider His ascension and the ramifications of that, that it may goad us to love and good works, to the advancement of the kingdom. And we ask that You would set our minds upon that. And we ask this in His name and for His sake. Amen. Well, brethren, my title today doesn't appear in the bulletin, but the title is The Ascension. Salvation is completed. Uh, forty days after the resurrection, our Lord ascended from this earth to the right hand of the the Father and during that forty day period He spent a great deal of time with His disciples. He had eaten with them, He had instructed them as to their continued work. It was during this forty day period that the Great Commission was given to the uh, the disciples, who would later be called the apostles, Thomas, who had doubted that he had risen, had touched his hands inside to affirm by his own senses that Jesus had risen from the dead. He had consoled Peter when Peter was out fishing, and Jesus was on the on the uh, the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and they were rowing in and, see, and, and Peter recognized Christ but yet was overtaken by uh, his denial of the Savior uh, just prior to the re- uh, crucifixion. Christ consoles him and tells him to feed his sheep, to, to, to comfort and provide for the church that he was building. He had been witnessed by over 500 according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.6, but some of those had already died when, when Paul wrote those words to the Corinthians. And Jesus was now prepared to finish the final act, the completing of the work of salvation for mankind. And you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Hickey, didn't he say on the cross, it is finished? Yes, his sacrifice had been finished, but not all the the acts for salvation were completed. His resurrection had not yet happened, which was absolutely necessary for our salvation. But I would submit to you his ascension was as well, as we will look into it today. He would ascend after 40 days to the right hand of the Father to, to ever make intercession for those the Father had given him to be saved. And you may be wondering, well, Pastor Hickey, why aren't you waiting a few weeks to preach this sermon on Ascension Sunday? And the reason is I probably won't be here. Uh, we have a week's vacation coming up, and I think it's, it coincides with that same Sunday. So I chose to, to preach this sermon today on the Ascension. For those of us who have been Christians for many years, we seldom think about the importance of the ascension of our Lord in the execution of God's decree for salvation to mankind. My mentor, Dan Clay, many of you know him, called the ascension of our Lord the forgotten doctrine of the Christian church. The forgotten doctrine of the Christian church. Well, today I want us to consider just three aspects of the ascension, and the importance of those aspects in the work of salvation for Christ's church. And those aspects are these. First, the high priestly work accomplished in Christ's ascension. The high priestly work accomplished in Christ's ascension. Second, the symbolic importance of Christ's ascension. And then lastly, the eschatological importance of Christ's ascension. That's a big word Young people, eschatological, it means end times, or what's coming later. Uh, That's what that word means. Well, let's begin with the high high priestly work of the ascension. While on the cross of Calvary, there was an event recorded that seems to be somewhat out of place with the scene on Galgotha. The event took place in the temple, while all the other events took place either in the courts of Herod and Pilate, Or outside the walls of Jerusalem. This one event was the rending in two of the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies in the temple. In Luke 23 51 we read that when Jesus breathed his last, the veil was rent in two from top to bottom. But what significance did this have? Why was this recorded in the annals of Scripture? The answer lies in the priestly work that Jesus was performing for mankind. Since Adam's fall into sin, there was a wall of separation between mankind and God. And that wall still exists for those who have never placed their faith in the one whose life was given to pierce that wall of separation. Jesus literally tore into the wall of separation between God and mankind On the cross the temple in Jerusalem was the place God would descend from heaven as a cloud and would inhabit the Holy of Holies behind the veil behind this curtain this would occur on the day of atonement when the high priest of Israel would go behind the veil into the very presence of God and sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the mercy seat of God not just any man could do this deed It had to be a high priest. Furthermore, the high priest who did this deed had to be without sin in his own life. Otherwise, the sacrifice would be rejected, the priest slain by God himself, and the priest dragged out of the Holy of Holies by a rope tied around his ankle. This is how serious a matter this was to bring the sacrificial blood of the Lamb into the Holy of Holies. We read these words, uh, excuse me, furthermore, the high priest who did this deed had to be without sin in his own life, otherwise the sacrifice would be rejected. And we read these words in Hebrews 6, verses 19 through 20. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then later in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, But he, meaning Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Brethren, the priests of the Old Covenant had one primary duty. That duty, among their other duties, was to make intercession for the people of Israel by presenting sacrifices to God on behalf of sinners, including themselves. For Jesus to complete this work on behalf of mankind, it was necessary for him to enter the Holy of Holies. Not in the temple but in heaven itself, and sprinkle the mercy seat of God with the blood from the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, His own blood. Paul writes further in Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 12, But Christ came as high priest of good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Brethren, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, was both our high priest and the very sacrifice necessary to to appease God. And he entered into the Holy of Holies, not in this earth, on this earth, but in heaven itself, past the torn veil, to present himself a living sacrifice unto the Father. But this would never have happened apart from his exaltation at the ascension. This ascension is essential, essential to our faith, essential to our salvation. He, Jesus, is doing the priestly work of taking the blood to the very mercy seat of God in heaven where He sits to ever make intercession for us. Well, there is symbolic importance to all of this. Before I explain that symbolic importance, I want us to consider what our culture uh, thinks of symbols. In large measure, we've diminished the importance of symbols in our culture, though I think in some respects it's coming back. Symbols, though, are all around us. And we are obvious, obli- uh, uh, many times oblivious to those symbols that are all around us. Let me give you an example. When you drive past a savings and loan or a bank on the street, what do you see? Often it's a very prominent building made with brick or stone. It may have ornamental pillars out front. It's very, very nicely appointed, isn't it? It's obvious that a great deal of money was spent to construct that edifice. And this is all symbolic. It was constructed to exude prestige as well as safety and security. It's a symbol of where you ought to put your money. It says nothing about the, 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 uh, the fidelity of those who are running the bank, but the symbol is all around them. This is an important place. Maybe I should have my money there. Similarly, Trademarks for products are symbols of what those products are supposed to engender. Who here does not know what the trademark is for Nike or Apple or IBM? We all know those things. Those images pop up in your mind when I even say them, don't they? These are symbols that are, per- are trying to portray something. And where does this need for symbols come from? Why do businesses or governments We have symbols for our government, don't we? A flag, the eagle, music, the national anthem, etc. Why do businesses or governments or churches even use symbols? Why do they use symbols? Brethren, it's because we are made in the image of God and God uses symbols. He uses symbols to teach us things to seal a promise to us. He uses all kinds of symbols in the church. And so we, being in His image, we use symbols as well. I'm not saying symbols are bad. Some of them can be. But most symbols are beneficial because they speak to something else. In the Old Covenant, God required the first fruits of the harvest each year to be given to Him. This He called a tithe. The tithe of the first fruits. This was both an actual but also a symbolic tithe. It was to teach the Israelites the indisputable principle found in De- Deuteronomy 8.18, and that is that God is the one who gives you the power to get wealth. God is the giver of all good things. It is also to symbolically show to Israel that blessings come from God because he is the author of blessings, the firstfruits of Are to be given back to him, the one who's provided it. Now, I want you to consider Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 through 28. Listen particularly to to the references to first fruits. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits after those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Brethren, Jesus is not only the firstborn of many brethren, he is the first fruits of salvation. It is he who enters the heavenly places in his resurrection body that has been promised to those who put their faith and trust in him. We too will have resurrected bodies as he has one. And where he is, the body he inhabits, the life he enjoys are the symbolic promises we have as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Because he is in heaven... He is the first fruits of salvation. Because he is in heaven, we too will follow him there. And just as the first fruits of the old covenant were a symbol of God's continued blessing to his people, offered back to him by faith, Jesus in his ascension is the first fruit, the symbol of God's blessing of salvation offered back to the Father by the faith of his eternal son. And this pictures what we shall receive as sons and daughters in the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Now this all brings me to the eschatological effects of the Ascension. I could spend weeks preaching on this. I won't do that. But I do want us to consider just a few of the eschatological effects of Christ's Ascension. Now let me say something about eschatology in the Bible when we hear the word eschatology, we think of things all the, all, all the things that are yet to come for us. It's in our future. Well, when the Bible talks about things that are yet to come, sometimes it's within the generations of the people that lived right then. And so we've got to be careful when we talk about eschatology that we set it in the proper context. And here, Jesus ascends into heaven and some things are going to happen Almost immediately after he ascends. But for the people that lived at that time, it was still yet a future event. Consider these. First, Jesus had promised the Comforter to his disciples, but only after he had gone to be with the Father. Consider our passage here. Jesus even says that. in verse. Uh, I'll say beginning in verse 46. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance and remission of sins. That's an important, uh, uh, those are important concepts with regard to eschatology. And you are witness of, witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endured with the power from on high. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit who's going to be sent to endue them with power to do the work of sharing the gospel, repentance and remission of sins to the world. But it had not yet happened. The Holy Spirit had not yet come. To them, it was still an eschatological event, a future event. So Jesus had promised the Comforter and in that first century right after His ascension they were still expecting the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we see that uh, Christ's promise of the Comforter in John 14 and John 16 verse 7. Jesus has ascended to the Father and the Spirit now has come to us. He came at Pentecost 50 days after His resurrection. So there's a a ten-day period between the ascension and the resurrection where they were still awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit. Second, because of the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the world would be convicted of sin and righteousness in a way that it had not previously been known. This is prophesied by Christ in John sixteen eight, and again here in Luke 24 in our passage. Brethren, this is being accomplished daily, even now. What to them was yet a future event, to us is reality. Third, according to Psalm 110.1, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father until all His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. That is being accomplished even now. But it's not yet fulfilled. Fourth, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform this, according to Isaiah's prophecy, chapter nine, verse seven. A fifth at eschatological event: the knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Habakkuk two fourteen. Let me say something about that particular prophecy. In some respects, it's accomplished. The. No, no, the Excuse me. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Do you know how it's been accomplished in our day? Through the Internet. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord expands everywhere in this world. Now, I suppose that there are some mountaintops where you may not get a connection. Now, I'm not real savvy with these kinds of things. It's possible, though, I think, that you could get a satellite connection even on those mountaintops. So you could access the glory of the knowledge of the Lord virtually from anywhere on earth. So in some respects, that has been realized. Though I think it will be much greater realized in the days ahead. Sixth, Jesus ascended into heaven to prepare for us what? A dwelling place. John 14 verses 1 and 2. Do you know that your dwelling place in the heavenlies will be constructed by the very hands of your Lord and Savior? Have you ever desired a mansion? The Bible calls in some translations calls that a mansion that He's constructing for us. That His Father has many mansions. And that we're going to be participants in living in a mansion. Can't wait to see what Jesus constructs for His church, for His bride. Can you imagine what the living God, the living God-man would construct for the bride He loves? The mansion that He's going to construct for His bride? What a thought. Brethren, the list goes on and on. The eschatological consequences of the ascension. It's so important to our faith. Jesus is the capstone of uh, Jesus' ascension is the capstone of his work in salvation. It is the crowning glory the Father places on his eternal Son. And I say crowning glory because the Son is rewarded for his faithfulness in life, his faithfulness in death, and his faithfulness in the resurrection. Because of his faithfulness, the Son is given an inheritance, a portion of God's Creation of His uh, a portion of God's wealth which is limitless. And not just a portion, He's given a double portion as the firstborn Son of the living Father. In Matthew 28, doesn't the Scriptures tell us all authority is given to Jesus over heaven and earth? Is that not a double portion? Jesus rules over all. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this brings us, all of that was said, to bring your attention to Psalm 47. This is a prophetic psalm. Remember in the passage in Luke 24, all had to, be, all had to come to fruition from Moses, from the prophets, and the Psalms that had prophesied about the work of Christ. And Psalm 47 is the ascension psalm to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves, Selah. God God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King. Sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of God, the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Adulation, the singing of praise, shouts of joy, the blasts of the trumpet, these are the actions of a people who have seen their king coronated. These are the actions of the people redeemed by the blood of the Ascended Lamb. This is the response of the kingdom of God to the ascension of the Son. He, Jesus Christ, is exalted on high. He rules over all. Of the increase of His government and of His peace there shall be no end. And redemption has drawn nigh unto us. Brethren, rejoice in Jesus your Savior. Rejoice and give praise for He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Let us pray together.